And would you prefer Mikhail or Mikhail? I'm always confused what how to tell my name here. It turns out to be Mikhail, which sounds to me strange, but I got used to it. Oh, you can say Mikhail, sure. Hey, Slava Connection listeners, it's Misha, and today I'm here with Taylor. Hey, y'all. We've had Mikhail Rubin on the podcast. He's a co-founder and deputy editor-in-chief of Project Media, Russia's leading investigative outlet. We talked about the state of Russian investigative journalism, the importance of having reliable sources, and Putin's personal evolution and the Russian regime's transformation over the years. We hope you enjoy this episode. How did you get into investigative journalism? Uh, well, actually, I was always more in news journalism. I was really interested in being the type of journalist who is talking to the secret sources, going to Kremlin, traveling a lot. It was extremely interesting for me. I always, as a young journalist, I always dreamed of being a part of Kremlin pool, seeing high rank officials, talking to them secretly, all that stuff. I was really dreaming of it. When I started working in Kremlin Pool, it turned out to be not that interesting as I dreamed of. Just because, well, you know, in Russia, being working with President Putin means that if you are an independent journalist, everybody in the pool hates you. It turned out to be that the press service of Mr. Putin hated me. They didn't give me a real opportunity to work. I faced a lot of difficulties, but again, it was useful for me as a journalist who tried to work with sources because I wasn't really able to uh, to write reports just because they didn't give me a real access. For example, if you come to the meeting where there is a President Putin with somebody, they tried not to let me go inside, but please sit in the press office and watch it on the TV. The translation was really funny. It was really strange. Uh, but again, it gave me an opportunity to work with sources, to talk to somebody, to know some information, kind of a, very useful for a journalist. But unfortunately, I would say in, well, five or six or seven years ago, I realized that it is practically not able anymore to be a news journalist in Russia. Well, what is working with sources? It means that somebody is interested in talking to you. It's not like in the United States where officials have to talk to journalists. No, in Russia, it's not that. It is because that you ask them 20 times and after that they decided maybe, maybe it could be not that bad. Maybe they won't be put in jail because of talking to you. Well, I'm joking. At that time it wasn't about the jail. It was about that maybe they won't be fired or whatever. They won't face any problems. And then they could talk and t- tell you something interesting. And I came to conclusion that it becomes useless, this kind of job that they don't tell me the truth anymore. They are not interested in talking to journalists anymore because time has changed. Because, well, they decided that they don't want to convey anything to the oppositional audience. 
And that was the huge problem. I understood that my work as a news journalist is useless because I cannot really tell any secrets to my, secrets to my audience, tell anything which could be very useless. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking of uh, some more, uh, what could be more interesting in journalism these days. And the investigative journalism, to tell you the truth, was the only option um, because it is the only type of journalism where you can find something interesting and something important if you cannot talk to people for the news then you have to take your time work with databases work with opened and closed databases think try to try take your time trying to talk to people which is very difficult not maybe the high rank officials that's how i realized that the investigative journalism is the only option absolutely and You mentioned that journalism was your dream. Why was it your dream as a young person? I don't know. Maybe because of my father, he was very interested in politics and he told me a lot about politics uh, when I was young. Well, he tried to talk with me about physics also because as a normal Soviet person, he was an, he's an engineer. Well, he is retired now, but he was that time an engineer. And um, But I wasn't interested in talking into, with, about science. Uh, with him, I always was interested, I don't know why, about talking to politics, about politics. So that wasn't a question for me. And coming to your investigative work, do you think there is enough people in the government right now, in Russia's government, who are against the system or trying to play off of each other And that's why they share some secrets with you or some sensitive information. Uh, first of all, practically no. If someone tells you, some per, any person tells you today that, Misha, I know a lot about Kremlin. I, they talk to me, maybe not every day, but every week and reveal some secrets. You can be sure to go away and never talk with this person. He's a liar. Those people who are telling that they know at least something about what's going on. That's the system. The problem is the system. It is connected with only one person. Only one person makes decisions. Vladimir Putin. So to understand what is, it's not about the parliament. It's not about the government. It's about President Putin. And that's it. And maybe a few military or former KGB offices, FSB now. So how can you understand what is going on in the mind of one person who is not talking much, even with the close people? So that's the first thing. So today it's practically impossible <laughs> to, to know, to get some secret information from high rank officials. But I agree. Of course, it's, an impo- it's a very important question. What I mean is that, well, of course, it's important because we dream of getting some information from them. There are some people, of course, there are some people who are not happy about the war. I would say, as far as we understand, we don't know, nobody could talk to us, but we know that some people were shocked when the war started. No, some people did talk. I mean that we cannot measure somehow how much, how many of them. But we know that some people were shocked. Of course, Russian elite, it is totally corrupted. It is interested in wealth, women, I don't know what, but... It is totally corrupted and used to live very rich life. And so when the war started and this rich life came to an end, of course, they were shocked. They were not happy, but that's it. On the one hand, they had this 
rich life. On the other hand, they have prison. They don't have a place to go. They cannot move to another political party, go to the opposition. That's not the way for them. That's the huge problem. They cannot retire even these days. They are totally connected with Mr. Putin. So the only possibility they have is to sit tight, wait, and in the words, strongly support him. Most of them are totally scared of talking to journalists. There were different stages in this process. I would say that right after the war, when there were uh, not that much laws that time telling you to strictly support the war, there were not that much that time. They were more brave. I had, that time I had at least some sources who kept telling me, wow, we are like fascists, what are we doing? But when they quit talking to me, they went on the television and said, oh, I strongly support what President Putin does. Well, that's what they, that was the first. Now they're even afraid of talking secretly. Now, like I had this problem a week ago, I lost my very good source I had. I wrote to him in the secret message in Telegram and asked some questions. And for a few couple of days, he didn't respond to me. And it was very strange because before that, he was very open. For that kind of informed person, he was too open. I would say sometimes even he called or messaged me and told me some very interesting news. I really admired this person. And thank you that, well, this person was with me for some time. <laughs> he helped me with a lot of very interesting news. But... He didn't respond for a few days, and I was persistent, asking what's going on. And he wrote me the message was, do you understand that you let me down? It's a setup for me to, to go on with such talks, sorry. Um, that's what, and he was the bravest. I don't know what happened. I don't think that he had even any problems. I don't see any reasons. He held his position still, but... But, but people are, get afraid. If you live in that kind of a country as Russia is today, it's very difficult to be brave. It's very easy for me to be brave sitting here. <laughs> so you mentioned how the state of sources being open has changed since the war started versus now. Has the war impacted the practice of investigative journalism itself beyond sources? Yes, we have to work much more. Well, first of all, all Russian media had to, independent media had to leave the country. It is very stupid when you have to cover what's going on in your country sitting from abroad, just because you cannot even go there. First time when we left Russia, it was before the war. We were able to send some of our journalists who were not under any prosecutions. Well, for example, I cannot go at all, or my boss cannot go at all, but somebody were able to go secretly. And we could send our colleagues, ask our colleagues to go if they were ready. It was always their choice to do that, because in any case, it was an act of bravery. And firstly, they went to Russia and they, well, at least if we were investigating some official and telling about his, I don't know, wealth, nice house just to, to film it. Or we asked some guys who deal with drones, for example, to film from this up what's going on in that nice house. But I would say a few months, half a year after the war, we stopped doing that at all because we understand that people are very afraid and they could be 
put in prison. So we don't have an access to the country at all. We practically don't have a possibility of talking to a high rank people. We can talk to some not high rank people, but again, it's very rare, very difficult. It's a question of luck. And only that, because maybe this person today has, you know, when you have to deal with a terrible regime, you sometimes feel bad and you feel that maybe you want to share with journalists something. It's a question of luck and only of luck. But we cannot think only, we cannot make investigation dealing with luck only. So these days, it's working with opened and closed databases. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, Russia is still a country where you can get an access. It is what is called pro-beef. I'm not sure if everybody knows, but it, this Russian word was included to the New York Times dictionary, I guess, a few years ago, because it's, it's a method of getting a lot of information in Russia dealing with the black market. It's an interesting thing, but it really happens to us. It is well, like pro-beef is a method with which hopefully was made the investigation about poisoning Alexei Navalny. They got access to billings of the FSB officers uh, due to it. And that's how they understood who poisoned him. That's how we work these days. Mm -hmm. So open databases, but unfortunately, Russian authorities do close a lot of databases we were previously able, for example, before, well, even a year ago, we were able to watch officially every address who possesses any land and any apartment in Russia. It was opened. Russia wasn't always the closed country. Even a year ago, it was able to see who possesses what. These days, we cannot do that. They really, they, adopt, they adopted a new law, which banned this possibility. You cannot see anything these days. So it is sh- shrinking. That's why we have to deal more with ProBeef and with the black market. Um, that's the only thing we can do. So it sounds like there's a lot of odds stacked against investigative journalism in Russia. What keeps you going? What keeps you dedicated to the cause? Um, well, first of all, I'm, well, I'm devoted to journalism. <laughs> uh, I'm devoted to what I do because I like what I do. Uh, the second thing is, well, it's war. Uh, the situation is terrible and a lot of people are thinking, what can they do? How can they help? I have this luck and this fortune that I can do something with this. That's very important to me. Well, my friends sometimes ask me, well, why do you still working as a journalist? You won't get money when the Russian journalists, independent journalists don't get a lot of money. And that's, well, I always answer them that I, ha- I want to see how Putin regime ends. That's really interesting to me. I want to see that as a journalist. And the other thing, well, it's really interesting to tell you the truth. It's not that, well, when you leave your home country being an adult person, it's not an easy uh, to find a new way. I really don't want to change something. I even don't want to change my speciality as a journalist who specializes in Russia just because it's very interesting. Uh, It's very interesting to see how it's going on. And I realized that I don't think that there are too much teams uh, who can find uh, the kind of information we sometimes find, mm-hmm. like about Putin's secret lovers, about his health. Mm-hmm. Nobody did it before us. We are, I think that we have a great team and I don't want to lose that. You 
you've uh, profiled Evgeny Prigozhin for Project Media. Could you tell us why he was so brave to challenge Putin? Did he realize what he is doing? Because many Americans were fascinated to see that such a 19th century almost warlord kind of vying for power in Russia. And I mean, it came out of nowhere. And you, as you said, some of your sources are scared to even share a little detail with you. But but he went on for almost a coup. Yeah, that's very interesting. We don't know. But what can I think of? First of all, we need to understand who rules Russia these days. Uh, that are not normal politicians who think like politicians. Most of them are former FSB officers. Those people who worked in this structures, especially in Soviet KGB, they have a different type of mind than is common for us, normal. The second thing, there are not only KGB officers, there are criminals who are working with Putin. Evgeny Prigozhin is a criminal, real criminal. That's not a person who had maybe some problems with taxes or I don't know what. This is a type of person who was sentenced to 10 years in prison a long time ago because of robbery and terrible robbery. He chucked women and stole a lot, stole a lot of things. He's a cruel person. So that's the one part. On the other hand, so in Russian authority, we had some people who, we have some and still have some people who have the criminal past. The second thing, loyalty means everything. As far as we understand, this criminal person, Evgeny Prigozhin, thought that he is very close to Vladimir Putin. What was his idea, as far as I understand? I'm very loyal to... I, I've heard that a lot. That doesn't surprise me. I'm very loyal to the master, to the president. And beside that, I'm very independent. Because he decided that I have a, what he was thinking, as far as I understand. I have a lot of success. I'm the only person... I'm the only commander in the war among real generals. I'm the only person who has a success, who was able to take the city, the Bakhmut. And he decided that he's great. That made him crazy, as far as we understand. He didn't have any, well, he's a person who was, again, sure that president, if he's loyal, in that case, to Putin, he can attack any other people except for President Putin. And the other thing is that he decided that he's great. I don't think that he really wanted to take power. I, we don't know what he wanted. Maybe he also didn't know what he wants. That's possible. He's criminal. Again, he doesn't think of him as a politician. He never tried to be elected to the parliament. He never dealt with this. What he was doing, he was cooking. Well, he, of course, he had a nice business, he was cooking and he was listening very carefully because working at all that high-rank uh, dinners with, with Mr. Putin and President Bush, for example, he was listening and recording and writing. Maybe he thought that he has some kind of information. What, that's what I thought, that he has some kind of information on President Putin, possessing which he would never be killed. But somehow he was killed. Um, I have a very easy explanation. Maybe he was that stupid. Maybe that happens. If we see, oh, that's our problem. When we see that some people, it's, it's Russian problem mainly, not American. But in Russia, when we see that some person gets a high rank post, if we see him on the television, we think that, wow, he should be that smart. Of course, he's a great person. He's not like us. 
Prigozhin is not like us. Of course, he's not like us. He's a criminal. And he was thinking as a criminal, I'm great, I'm loyal. In that case, I can do whatever I want. No, in Russian political system, you cannot. And who is going to do Russia's bidding in gray zone warfare around the world, basically doing Russia's business uh, mm-hmm. uh, abroad, kind of covertly? without Russia's official presence, uh, who is going to substitute that gap? Will Russia's MOD be efficient in doing that sort of stuff? In, for instance, like private military company business? Oh, I think that they are disappointed in the idea of private military these days. I think that they won't do that again, or at least they would be much more accurate. As far as what we know, these days we don't have any particular information, but what we see is that they made all these private military structures, they put them under the control of official Ministry of Defense. That's what they are doing. They are strongly disappointed in this idea, and I don't think that they would ever let any person to be as strong as Mr. Prigozhin was. Putin tries not to, not to make common mistakes again. Uh, there are a lot of, Putin is a paranoid, we need to understand it, and we need to understand that because he is a paranoid, when he sees some kind of a, uh, that's something, if something scares Mr. Putin, he never gives that kind of person or this kind of even a structure to be able to ever scare him again. For example, a long time ago in 2000, well, a long time ago, we had a very strange position of a general prosecutor in Russia. This kind of person had a lot of possibilities. And then Putin was afraid of a general prosecutor, Mr. Ustinov. What he did when he decided that Mr. Ustinov became too powerful and too strong, too strong, of course he fired him. But he took a lot of possibilities from the general prosecutor. He doesn't have that much uh, possibilities now. He general prosecutor these days in Russia is practically nobody. Nobody. He cannot do nothing. And 20 years ago, he was the god. That's how President Putin thinks. Again, now he won't let any private army to be strong. And I think that there won't be real private armies. There will be some structures who can do some terrible things around the world who are officially not connected. But I can assure you they uh, that are officially not connected to the Ministry of Defense. But... I can assure you that they will be really connected. So, kind of on the same topic, your piece, Master and Chef, was shortlisted for the European Press Prize in 2020. And that was this bombshell discovery about Russian involvement in Libya. Do you have any updates about that project? Or are you still examining the situation in Libya? No, we are not because we don't have resources for that these days, unfortunately, because we are very we are very concentrated on the Ukraine on the Ukraine. So no, we don't know practically anything of that. We were interested when we made the investigation, the new investigation about Mr. Prigozhin. After the mutiny, we tried to understand what's going on. We saw that some experts, Prigozhin's experts who previously worked in Africa, they left Africa. So I even cannot give you, I know that still there are some countries where, not now, before his death, I know that even after the invasion into Ukraine, they went on working in some countries. 
but I don't have any details, unfortunately, these days. And would you say that Ukraine is also the main priority for Russia, for Russian state? And because we still hear about Russia's military presence in in Syria and even in Libya through private military company. Also in Africa, there's a lot of kind of conversations going on about Russia's role in getting Africa's resources. Why why does Ukraine play such a special role, do you think, in, in Putin's calculations? It even cannot be compared. In Ukraine, we have huge Russian army. In other regions you mentioned, we have small groups to be compared. By the way, Putin didn't want to have that large army in the Ukraine. Putin wanted to have, as we all know, Putin wanted a real special military operation, how it's called still in Russia, where Russian army enters the country. People are glad to meet the army. Pretty girls give flowers to the soldiers. Everybody are happy. The region is put under control. Putin really wanted this kind of situation, of course. That was the part of his plan to be, he needs as far as I think, that's my guess, that he needs to explain to himself why he's going to run for presidency for the fifth term. It's very difficult. Well, he was the kind of person who 15 years ago told people that that's very bad to when one, one person rules the country for a long time. I think he wanted an explanation why. And the explanation was that we have a lot of new territories. I'm a kind of a good empire, nice empire. Everybody are dreaming of being a part of that empire. And that's why, of course, I need to be again, because we have new territories and I'm not the president of the former Russia, but I'm the president of Russia and part of Ukraine. That was his dream. There was a plan which he, which he wrote to himself, or maybe some FSB officers helped him. I don't know who. It was that stupid that we even cannot find an author these days, even among Russian officials. So it was very important for him. But again, he wanted this group to be very small, like in Syria, maybe a little bit bigger, like in any other parts of the world, like a small group who are everybody glad to see without, of course, any blood. Well, or very little blood. But it didn't work. And what Putin is thinking is that if he, ah, why? Because he found out in 2000 why he was thinking of it, that it is important for his new presidency. Because unfortunately, he found out that in 2014, that Russian people are happy with taking new territories. That's a huge problem. I'm not glad to tell that about Russian people, but that's true. Not all, of course, but for a big part of Russian population, that's, he found out. He even, I think that he even didn't think of it, but he found out that it's much better than salaries, much better than a lot of things. People were happy. That's a possibility for him to increase his rating, unfortunately. So he made this plan. What he saw, of course, a few months later, that Russian army is not, he was shocked, of course, that Russian army is not able to take Ukraine under control. But if he calls off the military, he would have to say, admit that he lost. Putin is a kind of a leader who population likes because he's a brutal guy. He is a brutal guy, strong guy, who cannot lose. So he thought he decided that if he calls off the military, that would mean calling off himself as a president also. 
I don't know if that's true or not. But unfortunately, in his mind, it looks like that. He cannot lose. He can only win. Uh, that's why he will, he will do everything for people to think that he is winning. That doesn't mean that he needs to conquer Ukraine. It means that he needs to get something that Russian propaganda could bring to the people on the television like a victory. What is that? We don't know. Again, that's the huge problem. Unfortunately, I would really like to open his head, look into his brains, make a small surgeon and to see what he is thinking. What is this plan? He never answers. So you, you mentioned this Putin dream of just kind of marching into Ukraine, pretty girls giving the soldiers laurels and whatnot. How do you think Putin got it so wrong? And do you think that the lack of free debate or the lack of allowing dissent was part of that? That's very easy. All we, what we study in the clever books about politics is working. I assure you that if you get that much of power for 20 years, if you watch TV every day where everybody will be saying that you are great, you are great every day. First, maybe you laugh. Second day, you maybe not laugh. Third day, you are skeptical, but a bit. But after 20 years, of course, I'm great. I'm a great leader. Everybody are telling. This nice journalist is telling. This nice journalist is telling that I'm great. Officials, all officials start talking to me with the words like, Mr. President, you are great. Of course, in this situation, you start believing it, into it. Another thing, uh, he's again, he's a KGB officer. He doesn't understand how to Google whatever. Just because he became the president a little bit before the internet was spread that widely. You get used to living and getting information, not from the real sources, but from this small red, well, if you see the Putin's table, you see every time the red papers on it. It's the FSB reports from different kind of, about everything. And you start believing in the FSB reports and not in the real life. Uh, he practically don't communicate with people. He don't talk. He don't go, well, we sometimes see that Putin is visiting something. But the people are usually prepared for this meeting, for this meetings. So he doesn't know, you don't have any, again, you have, you know, every day you learn that you are great, you don't see a real life, and you get all the information from this strange red papers from the FSB. In that situation, and you, you forget how to think critically. That's a huge problem. You start to trust your FSB officers. And these FSB officers are not interested in telling the truth to you. Because they are interested in getting a medal or getting a reward, a huge amount of money, new house, whatever. So they report what Putin wants to, wants to hear. And do you think that this is a Putin problem or do you think it's a systems problem? Like a lot of people posit the post-Putin world. They think about it like you yourself said that you're interested to see that as a journalist. Do you think that a different strongman will replace him? Or do you think that that will be the moment for systemic change? I don't know. I want to be an optimist, of course. I want right. to believe that. Well, I'm sure that after Putin, any leader will be better. Just because a new leader is always better than the leader who spent 24, nearly, years at the being a president or prime minister. It's the same. So I believe that after Putin, it will be, it will be better. But answering your question, is it a systematic problem? Of course, it's the problem and it is the, well, 
I have to be calm answering this question. Of course, I don't like it, but we need to say that. Unfortunately, it is normal. Normal, uh, by saying normal, I don't mean that it's good, but it is normal for people to suffer after losing empire. This is the process which is explained by a lot of scientists, historians, and a lot. Every time when any, any country loses its territories, loses empire, people for a long time, unfortunately, are dream, dreaming about reconstructing this empire. As all we know, it's very obvious to say, but as we know, after the Roman Empire in the whole Europe for centuries, they were dreaming about recovery. That's a terrible thing. And of course, I would love Russian people not to think as a Europeans in medieval times, in a dark times, but unfortunately, that's how they are thinking now. So it's, of course, it's a systematic problem. Of course, it's a systematic problem. But I'm, I really believe that people have to, have to survive with this. up our conversation as a person who has been watching and uh, chronicling Putin for so many years. Do you think that Ukraine was the first time when he encountered reality, when all those red folders, papers, they did not uh, correspond to reality and the three-day war did not happen? And then right now there's reports about the 2022 peace talks uh, in March and April being basically derailed by the West, by, by Prime Minister Johnson of Great Britain. Do you think that Putin, why did he go for pulling out the troops out of the north Ukraine and why he kind of backed down, if we might say, during that period? Because he understood that it is not possible to take control over the whole territory of Ukraine. That wasn't just possible. I just need to remind you that that time there wasn't that much amount of Russian soldiers. Russian army is divided into the professional part and the recruits. That time, they were, and they, he really didn't want to use recruits. What he did during all his presidency is to shorten the service of recruits in Russia. Russian army, still there are a lot of recruits, but they, are, they didn't do anything. If you ask any Russian person who served in the military as a recruit, what did you do? Oh, well, we were cleaning. Well, they were not prepared to war. And that was the part of Putin's politics, that we have a huge army. But really, if you're not a professional, you won't ever be put to war. He promised that. And he really believed in it. So that time, the Ukraine was invaded by a very small, prof not very, but comparatively to the territory of Ukraine, comparatively small professional part of Russian army. There was a very little amount of, very little, again, a lot of, but very little for taking con control over the huge Ukrainian territory. Ukraine is a huge country in the European, according to European measures, one of the biggest. So it was very difficult to take it. So Putin just realized that it's not possible. And he decided to concentrate of taking control over Russian speaking part of Ukraine. In his mind, it was very clever. So I don't think that it was a huge problem for him. As a final question, we would like to give you an opportunity to plug Project Media. Can you tell us about Project Media and any other big projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, everybody should subscribe on Project. And really, we try to, on our YouTube channel, we try to make English subtitles. For example, our last documentary movie about Ukraine. It was uh, published a few days ago and was 
we have some millions of viewers now and please everybody watch it also find us project on the youtube and watch our last movie about how putin started the war i think there is a great explanation made by my colleague andrei zaharov it's a very nice chance to understand how everything started back in 2014 how putin he really describes showing a lot of documents giving some voice messaging he gives a lot of details really documented how Putin started this war. So uh, I strongly recommend to watch this movie. Again, there are English subtitles to understand how everything happened. We tried to, a few times a month, we tried to make uh, more or less big investigations. Some of them, we try, what we are focused on is uh, topics that anybody else cannot do except us. Scared don't have ability whatever so we are concentrated in a prohibited topics in russia such as putin's health putin's wealth putin's everything awesome well спасибо большое спасибо вам спасибо slava connection is part of the texas podcast network the conversations changing the world brought to you by the university of texas at austin the opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the university of texas at austin for more information please visit us online at slobxradio.com thank you the center for russian east european and eurasian studies condemns the russian federation's military invasion of ukraine We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.